invite you to take your Bibles now and turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. We are going to move away from our verse-by-verse exposition of the Gospel of Matthew for a few weeks here during the Thanksgiving and Christmas season. And this morning, I wanted to open the word up to you and speak about this wonderful issue of rejoicing. And this morning, I have entitled my sermon to you, Reasons to Rejoice. I love the Thanksgiving season. I hope you do as well. It brings great joy to my heart, and certainly it is a time when we can reflect upon the many blessings that we have here in the United States of America. It is a season that we typically do that. We think about our great history, and if we are honest with our history, we are mindful of those Christians that came here many, many years ago seeking religious freedom, seeking to carve out for themselves a new life in a new world, and they sacrificed in ways that we can only imagine just to be able to survive so that they could raise their families in a culture that loved the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible. And in this season, we share their spirit of thanksgiving as we look back and see how God has honored our great country by blessing us and making our country what it is today, even though we see a moral freefall in our country and we see many people falling away from our roots. Nevertheless, God continues to bless and there certainly remains a remnant here in this country. And so we praise God because he preserves us not only from attacks on the outside, but also attacks on the inside, people that would destroy us. But we also share with those early pilgrims something greater than our American heritage because we share with them the glorious freedom that we have, not just from religious bondage in Europe, but from the bondage of sin because of our faith in Christ. We share their faith in the Lord Jesus. They were, as we are, people of like precious faith. We share with them the marvelous reality that we are citizens of another kingdom. They understood that, and we understood, understand that as well today. We, like Abraham, are aliens, Hebrews tells us, aliens in this world. Hebrews 11.10 says, fellow heirs of the same promise. And that would be of a promise of a heavenly kingdom. And as Abraham, we are looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Referring, of course, to the New Jerusalem described in great detail in Revelation chapter 21. That 1,500-mile cube city, the capital city of heaven, that someday we will enter in and out of. So we would all do well to remember, dear friends, that this earth is not our home. So don't get too attached to it. Don't get too comfortable here. Don't lay up your treasures here. Don't get too caught up in all the things that go on here because we're just passing through. There's an old saying that says... There's no place like home. And my, is that a true statement or what? All you have to do is go away for a while. 
I remember when I was in Africa, while I loved the people and I loved what God had called me to do there, with every day I was longing to get home. There's no place like home. But, oh, dear child of God, please think of this before we even enter into the text. Though we have never seen our eternal home, though we only have glimpses of what it might look like in Scripture, we can understand this, that someday when we arrive in our heavenly home, there will be no disappointment. There will be no feelings of, oh, I'm in a strange place. There will be no inkling of homesickness for familiar places or for familiar places. We will know immediately that finally, for the first time, we are home. That we are finally in that place for which we were eternally made. In fact, because we have been made in the image of God, because, as Peter says, we are partakers of the divine nature. When we see him as he is, we will instantly see resemblances that in this life we could have never imagined. For we will see our heavenly father. And because we have been adopted as sons and daughters, we will be with family, right? We will be with our family and we will see our heavenly father who has cared for us even when we were in our mother's womb. We will see our precious savior who shed his blood on our behalf for the redemption of our sins. We will see the tender Holy Spirit who breathed spiritual life into us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins and who lived within us all of the years of our life to teach us and convict us and encourage us and even preserve us. For those of us who know and love Christ, there awaits a wonderful homecoming that staggers the imagination. And because of this, we have reason to rejoice. Amen? We have reason to rejoice with those early pilgrims who understood these very things as they came from Europe to the United States, as well as with all of the saints down through redemptive history. So this morning, with this as a background, let's look at First Peter. We're going to look at the first nine verses. I'm not, not going to be able to give them the depth of analysis that they deserve, but certainly all we have time for this morning, and I'm sure it will be enough to encourage your heart as it has mine. First Peter 1, beginning in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory 
and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. May I give you the context of this passage of scripture, of this epistle. In verse 1, we read here that Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, is writing to those who reside as aliens. Heroikos in the original language, and it denotes a pilgrim, a sojourner, a foreigner, someone who is living in a temporary fashion in a strange place that is not his home, a temporary resident who has an allegiance and a love for another place. The word in English that we derive from this Greek word is perish. And I think of this, I I love this concept, and we typically don't talk of our churches as parishes, but we could. Calvary Bible Church, for example, is a parish because technically what it would be is a particular assembly of aliens. And of course, some people that know Christians would say, boy, isn't that true? We are an assembly of pilgrims, of sojourners. And that's how Peter addresses this text, addresses these people, I should say. So as sojourners, as aliens, as people of a different place than this world, We, of course, have a different worldview than people that do not have Christ. We've been given a new heart, a new mind. We even have been given a new song. That's why our music is so radically different than the music of the world. We we have within us the Spirit of God that causes us to long to sing the songs of redemption and praise and worship. Very, very different than what you will hear in the world. And so he says that he's writing here to aliens, and he goes on and he says, scattered throughout Throughout, and then he gives an area. And the word scattered throughout is diaspora, where we get the, the, the concept of the, the, the diaspora, those who, are, who have been dispersed, primarily referring to the, to the Jews who were dispersed through deportation and some of them even voluntarily to a foreign land. However, certainly they longed to go back to their beloved Palestine and to Jerusalem and to the temple But their supreme longing was for their heavenly father, fatherland, where they would one day be gathered with their Messiah. So he says that he's writing now to these aliens scattered throughout. And then he gives a list here. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. These were all Roman provinces in Asia Minor, a listing we believe that was according to the postal route or the mail route that this particular letter would have been delivered. And to understand the context of what the people were going through in that day, please know that the people to whom he was writing, the, the, the people that were the aliens, were under enormous persecution. They were suffering in all kinds of trials. We know that during this time period, in his lust to 
to build, Emperor Nero burned Rome. You may remember the story. And he blamed it on the Christians. And so the Christians were under uh, vicious persecution from the Romans. And certainly these regions that Peter is, is describing here in these first verses uh, were hostile to Christianity. They were hostile to Christians. And so these people were in bad need of encouragement. And even years after Peter had written this letter, there was a man by the name of, of Pliny the Younger. I love these old names, Pliny the Younger. And he was put in charge of this region called Bithynia. And he wrote to the great emperor Trajan asking for advice about the Christians. And, and in that context, we, we read that, uh, that he, tr- he talks about trying to, to, to force Christians to recant their faith and to bow down to pagan gods and to even curse Christ as they bowed down before the image of the emperor. And some of the Christians did, some of them didn't. But Pliny writes the emperor, and here's what he says. It seems to me to be necessary to get advice because many in every age group, every status of life, and both male and female, are now in danger and will be and will be in the future. This plague of superstition referring to Christianity, has spread over cities and over the fields and villages, but I believe that its advance can be stopped, end quote. So, and and as you read your history, you know that they did everything they could to stop Christianity with the edge of the sword, but all it did was, was cause it to multiply even more. So our text this morning is really... Uh, one that is written to people on the front edge of this great expansion of Christianity. And it is written, therefore, to Christians, to both Jews and Gentiles, who were victims of enormous persecution, who had been dispersed throughout Asia Minor. And he begins this encouragement here by saying, you who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You who are chosen Eklektois in Greek, we get our word election from that or the elect. It's translated the elect, which means to choose, to pick out, to select. And it denotes those whom God has sovereignly chosen for salvation. Now, I know this is a horribly offensive doctrine to those who are committed to self-determination and cannot stand the thought that God is sovereign over all of his creation, including sovereign over salvation. But in fact, this is the theme throughout Scripture, if you understand the doctrine of salvation. The same text, by the way, or the same term is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it's used to translate uh, the word chosen in Deuteronomy 14 and verse 2, where he's describing, God is describing his election or his choosing of Israel in that text. He says, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And so to be reminded of their sovereign and undeserved election or choosing was a great comfort to those living under persecution. But he doesn't stop there. He says, you who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the father. Now, friends, herein is. The reason why God chose us. Because he wanted to. Not because of our own merit, but because of his sovereign will, because of his decree. It is the divine prerogative of the creator to choose whom he will. 
And he did it, the text says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. By the way, foreknowledge can also be translated foreordained. It can be translated foreloved. Or it can be translated foreknown, as it is in verse 20, referring to Christ who was foreknown. So, friends, may I add here that this idea in the text of foreknowledge is far beyond some naive concept that would have us believe that God merely knew what was going to happen in the future. Although this is certainly true because of his omniscience. But as we understand the original language and all of the text surrounding this, he not only knew what was going to happen, he chose, he ordained, he decreed those whom he would save in his sovereign election. He did it according to divine decree. Romans 8:28 says that we are called according to his purpose for whom he foreknew. And there's the term again. He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So foreknowledge speaks of a predetermined choice to set his love upon us and to forge an intimate bond and an indissoluble bond of love with us. So foreknowledge means that he foreloved, he foreordained, not that he merely foreobserved. I hope you understand that. So Peter begins with these profound words of encouragement to these beleaguered saints, as if to say to them, look, folks, I know it's tough, but I want you to rejoice because remember, it is he that has chosen you. You do not choose him. For salvation, as Paul says in Romans 9:16, does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs. In other words, human effort, but on God who has mercy. Might I also just remind you here that it is God who is the author and the finisher of our faith, not us. The same God he is telling them that, that, that shows you in eternity past will by his power and his love safely deliver you unto himself. He will safely see you through these difficult times that you're experiencing. And he is going to accomplish all this plan in the middle of verse two by the sanctifying work of the spirit. Now, keep in mind, this is all this is all introduction here to where we're ultimately going to go. But I want you to understand the context and what the apostle is telling us through the inspiration of the spirit. He's going to do all of this by the sanctifying work of the spirit. That is, it's the Holy Spirit that sets us apart or makes us holy or consecrates us not only unto salvation when we have the imputed righteousness of Christ given to us, where we're declared righteous in our justification which is certainly the purpose of our election. But he also sets us apart unto holy living, the, the process of conforming us in that process of sanctification where we become ever more conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And why does he do this? He goes on in verse two, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Now, this is a curious phrase. What on earth would this mean? To be sprinkled with his blood. Well, unless you know the Old Testament background, which these people certainly did, this would be a very confusing statement. May I remind you, and you don't need to turn there, we won't have time this morning. But in Exodus chapter 24, in the first eight verses, you read about Moses, who rose up early one morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. And he offered burnt offerings there and sacrificed uh, peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. 
And he took half of the blood that came out of the oxen and he put it in basins. And he sprinkled, the text says, some of the blood, uh, half of the blood on the altar. And then he read the book of the covenant to all of the people, which would be the the civil and the social and the, the ceremonial laws that had been given to him on Mount Sinai. And the people heard all of the law that was read to them, and they agreed that they would obey the law. And the text says that all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. And so in verse 8, we read of Exodus 24, and Moses took the blood. Now, this is the rest of the blood that was put on the altar, the blood in in the basins. Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. And certainly this was a foreshadow of the symbolism that we see even in the Lord's Supper when the Lord spoke of his blood and the ratifying the the new covenant of grace. And so in response to the people's commitment to be obedient in that Old Testament time, Moses officially sealed the treaty, sealed the covenant, ratified the covenant with the blood by sprinkling it on them. And likewise, in the new covenant, it is the blood of Christ that seals God's promise to forgive us our sin. His blood, of course, was the perfect atonement, the propitiation, the satisfaction for the justice of God. But it is also the blood of Christ that seals our commitment to be obedient to him. And so here Peter uses these marvelous theological themes to bring comfort to the diaspora, to the aliens suffering for their faith as they remained dedicated in their allegiance to King Jesus. So he reminds them of the activities of of all three members of the Godhead because we worship a triune God. Never forget that. Our faith is a Trinitarian faith. Because of the absolute certainty of these astounding realities, he concludes his salutation here by saying, may grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. And then, if that isn't enough, as if he couldn't contain himself, Peter now breaks forth into a doxology. He breaks forth into praise based upon this this grace and this peace that he is describing. And he wants them to have it in abundance. And this really brings us to the heart of of what I would share with you this morning to encourage you as well as Peter did them in that day and therefore all of us during this season of thanksgiving. It is my desire this morning, dear friends, to give you, I should say, to remind you of the reasons to rejoice, okay? And I've divided these next seven verses into three categories that I trust will help you internalize this text And make it become a part of you as you live out your days as aliens in this strange land we call this world. Three reasons to rejoice. Let me give them to you and we will look at them closely. We first of all rejoice in the promise of our faith. Secondly, in the permanence of our faith. And thirdly, in the power of our faith. The promise, the permanence and the power of our faith. First of all, notice in verse three to the very first part of verse four. We see much about this idea of rejoicing in the promise of our faith. Notice what he says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance. Now, let's stop there again. Peter's heart now is is overflowing with joy, even though. Now, remember, back in John 21, Jesus told Peter that someday you're going to be crucified. How would you like to go through your entire life knowing that someday at the close of your life, you're going to be crucified? And we know that he was about two years after he wrote this. He was crucified upside down right after he watched his wife being crucified. And so here now, Peter, knowing that martyrdom was going to be the reward of his earthly ministry, still is writing with this attitude of joy and encouraging these people to rejoice. He's consumed with this contagious happiness. And so he encourages them by, in essence, saying, listen, folks, Live above the fray. Live victoriously. Don't become bitter and sour and sullen and critical and start losing your hope. Start questioning the Lord. Don't stop trusting the Lord. Because here's the perspective that you must have. You must remember, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying you are the recipients of divine mercy. He has given birth to you. You, you, you. You've been born again now into his family. You're completely a new creature in Christ. You have a new nature. So why be sad? And because of the new birth, he says you have a living hope. I love that phrase. This means you have an unshakable confidence that is confirmed and secured by the very Holy Spirit of God that lives within you. Romans fifteen thirteen, we read, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we have a living hope that is confirmed and secured by the historical fact of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. An undeniable proof of the infinite power of God over death. You see, friends, our hope, and this is what Peter is trying to get across, our hope is an abiding hope. It is an eternal hope. It is a spiritual fire that cannot be extinguished by circumstances. You see, our hope flows from a fountain that will never run dry. We, we drink of, of living water that comes from an infinite reservoir, one which will... Cause us to never thirst. You see, our God has loved us with an everlasting love. And He has infused us with His nature. And therefore given us eternal life. Now may I ask you, before we go any further in the text this morning. What on earth can possibly eclipse these glorious realities. And cause you to feel chronically depressed. Only one thing could cause that. And that is that you've lost your perspective of who you are in Christ. You know, as you think about it, the word of God tells us that as believers, we are what we are, we are sons of the most high. We are called children of God. We are beloved of God, the elect of God. We are we are heirs of promise. We are joint heirs with Jesus. We are redeemed, the redeemed of the Lord, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a chosen generation, a special treasure. It goes on and on and on. So why are we so sad? You see how easy it is to lose perspective of the reality of what life is really all about. 
You see, all of these titles point to a consummation in history, a culmination of God's predetermined plan when the king and his kingdom will be revealed. This is the great apocalypsis. As Revelation, the book of Revelation is called the Apocalypsis Jesu Christu, which means the revealing or the unveiling of Jesus Christ. This is what we all have to look forward to. And this is what we have to keep in our mind if we're going to have a living hope. You know, a man can endure just about anything as long as he has hope. But you take away his hope. And he has no more reason to go on. All too often, Christians, perhaps unwittingly, doubt the goodness and the faithfulness of God. In James 1.6, we read that the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea and tossed by the wind. Doubt, by the way, diacrino in the original language is a term that means a defective faith. It's a term that refers to, uh, to uncertainty about something that has been set forward as an object of faith. In fact, doubt and depression walk hand in hand, the very opposite of, of, of Peter's passionate um, praise here. And it's easy for us all to fall victim of doubt when life's, life gets tough. And I'm always reminded when I think of this in my own life, because I battle this, as I know you do, I'm reminded of Bunyan and his great spiritual allegory. You remember in Pilgrim's Progress? He was traveling along with his friend, Hopeful. Christian was the, the name that he gave for himself. Christian and Hopeful were traveling along, and all of a sudden they begin to, 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 to stumble and succumb to doubt. And Christian in particular began to lose his perspective of who he was in Christ. He began to lose his perspective of God's grace and goodness and faithfulness. And all of a sudden, he describes how he was thrown into the dungeon of Doubting Castle, where giant despair beat him and his wife distrust. Don't you love those names? And the story goes on that they beat him without mercy. And life seemed so overwhelming to him. He was just consumed with fears. He was blinded by self-deception, confused by errant doctrine. He became bitter. And as all people do, when they become bitter, they become unteachable and they become stubborn. And he refused to even hear any words of encouragement from his friend, hopeful. Finally, he was suicidal. And here's what he writes, and I quote, now, when night had come and when giant despair and his wife distrust had gone to bed, they began to renew their discussion of the prisoners. The old giant wondered why he couldn't bring the pilgrims to an end, either by his blows or his counsel. And his wife said to him, I fear that they live in hopes that someone will come to set them free. Or maybe they hope to find a way to pick the lock and escape. Since you mention it, my dear, I will go down and search them in the morning, the giant replied. But it so happened that on Saturday... At about midnight, the pilgrims began to pray and continued in prayer until almost daybreak. Then Christian, a short time before daylight, became astounded and passionately exclaimed, What a fool I am! Here I lie in a stinking dungeon when I could be walking in complete liberty. I have a key in my pocket called promise that I am sure will open any lock in Doubting Castle. 
So Christian pulled it out and went to the prison door. He put the key in the lock and turned it. And the door flew open immediately. Friends, this is a great illustration of what Peter was doing with these discouraged and persecuted saints of the first century. And also to all of us as we struggle with some of the same types of things. Oh, child of God, if I can, if I can get you to hear anything today, never lose sight of the promises that you've been given. For as soon as you do, you will seal yourself in a dungeon of doubt and despair that will ultimately destroy you and destroy your testimony. Notice, Peter goes on to further describe the promise of our faith wherein we have been born again. In verse 4, he says, To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Notice how he uses this family theme. Something that we would all understand. As children, we, we have a family inheritance. And this is what he's saying. As children of God the Father, we have a family inheritance that, that awaits us. The term inheritance is a term, by the way, that literally means a portion of the lot. A portion of the lot. In other words, we have a portion of the kingdom. And it's reserved in heaven for us. Notice it's not a corporate reservation. It's something individual. Each of us as believers have something individual that will belong to us in the kingdom. Paul reminds us of this, by the way, in Colossians 1.5. He talks about a hope that is laid up for us in heaven, or in other words, reserved in heaven. And in verse 12, he says, the Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. And there we have that same word. He has qualified us to share in a portion of the lot. Now, folks, let this sink in. We have, each of us as believers, have specific possessions that are being reserved for us in heaven. You say, well, what are they? I don't, I, I don't know. <laughs> the, the scripture doesn't say. All we know is that we have a portion of the lot. Now, I do think we have a bit of a hint in certain passages of scripture. For example, as I've given thought to this, in Deuteronomy 15.4, we see the same word used when they translated, when the Greeks translated the Old Testament. And in that text, it says, for the Lord will greatly bless you in the land, referring to the Israelites when they come into the promised land. The Lord will greatly bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance. Now, certainly this would have included geographical territory. It would have included certainly the land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, it, all of the plants, all of the livestock, all of the water, all of the houses, everything that would have been needed to, to make life full and enjoyable and bring glory to God and therefore evoke great worship and great praise. And along with this, of course, would have been the, the, the responsibility and the privilege of, of caring for whatever portion the people had. As each family worshipped the Lord by having dominion over the earth and subduing the earth for the glory of God. And so somehow I believe that that, that our inheritance, our portion of the lot in the kingdom, will reflect some elements of this. Certainly, it will be a possession of unimaginable glory and infinite delight. You think on this the next time you choose to feel sorry for yourself. So herein lies the first reason to rejoice, the promise of our faith. But notice, secondly, he's reminding us to rejoice in the permanence of our faith. 
the middle of verse four, he says that it is imperishable. It means unending. It is everlasting. It is permanent. By the way, it was also used to describe uh, something that cannot be ravaged by invading armies. <laughs> Think about this. And that would have been great encouragement to them because they were used to having their belongings taken away from them. Let me ask you, have you ever seen anyone able to steal a Christian's joy or to steal a Christian's hope? But see, this is great comfort to those of the diaspora who had been ravaged and plundered by those who hated them. You know, I know what it's like to be hated. I know what that's like. And some of you probably do as well. And it brings enormous pain. But dear friends, it can never, ever steal away my joy and my hope in the Lord. I have never even come close to the type of pain that the early Christians felt, especially those that were taken into the great uh, theaters to be eaten by the lions and the wild animals. And stories are fascinating to, to, to read about Christians who would be covered with blood and they would wrap animal skins on them. Many times they would have the families in a waiting area waiting for their turn to go into the arena before the, the, the bloodthirsty crowds to be killed by the animals. And it's fascinating that many times these Christians were reported of singing songs of rejoicing while they awaited their turn. And it was so profoundly offensive to the Romans that they would go and cut out their tongues. Well, why? Because the thing the enemy wants to do is take away the very thing that he can never take away. And that is your joy. That is your hope. That is your song. Oh, you might cut out the tongue, but the song is still there. That's why later on in 1 Peter 3, 4, Peter reminds us that we need to always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. And don't you know that that testimony of those early Christians caused many to wonder, what is it that could cause these people to have such resolute determination in the face of such enormous suffering and persecution. So our inheritance is imperishable. But not only that, he says that it's undefiled. It means unstained by sin. It's uncontaminated by any form of evil. Whatever it is that awaits us does not have a trace of wickedness. And it will not fade away. It will never decay. It will never cease to exist. Now, folks, that is some kind of an inheritance, isn't it? Shouldn't that cause you to rejoice? I would hope so. And if that isn't enough, in verse 5, he says, who are protected by the power of God. Protected here is a military term. It's referred to a soldier standing guard over an important object. And since grammatically it's in the present tense, it refers to, to a never-ending and ongoing protection. For indeed, there is a constant struggle for our souls in the spirit world that, that, that we can't even see. But friends, we have no need to fear. Why? Because our souls are constantly guarded by what? By the power of God. Oh, but pastor, I thought I could renounce my faith and my inheritance if I exercised my free will. No, both the child of God and his or her inheritance is protected by the power of God. You know, if I can say this lovingly, it takes enormous pride. 
to believe that somehow we can overpower the power of God with respect to our salvation. That somehow we can say, you know what, God, I'll be the author and I'll be the finisher of my faith if I so choose to be. Beloved, there's nothing like that in the word of God. That is a gross distortion of the doctrine of salvation and the security of the believer. Can you imagine one of your children coming to you and saying, you know what, I don't want to be your son anymore. Well, what do you do? I mean, they can renounce their inheritance. But there is nothing they can do to change the DNA that's flowing through their veins, right? Well, indeed, we are protected, he says, by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You know, even our faith is empowered by God. Paul tells us this in Romans 2 and verses 8 and 9. We know the text. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the what? It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. You see, enduring faith, dear friends, is evidence that indeed we possess faith. It is perseverance and obedience that validate genuine saving faith. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 14, we read, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. And notice, he goes on to say that this salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. Literally, he's saying that our salvation, in other words, uh, that time when we will, we will ultimately and finally be delivered from all of the effects of sin, from the power of sin and even the presence of sin, and when we will be given our glorious inheritance, that this salvation is completely prepared. It, it, it is ready and available. It is awaiting the day when our pilgrimage on earth is over and God decides to take us home. That's cause for rejoicing, is it not? Therefore, at the end of or the first part of verse six, he says, in this, you greatly rejoice. Well, he doesn't stop there. Not only do we rejoice in the promise of our faith and in the permanence of our faith, but finally, we rejoice in the power of our faith. Notice in the middle there of verse six. He goes on to say, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, the testing of fire was... An incredible thing, because it would certainly burn out the impurities. We understand all of that. But it was also fire that was used even symbolically to describe intense adversity. And we know that it will be what God uses even in eternal wrath. And so, friends, we have a faith that is so powerful that it is able to withstand in the intense heat of any kind of adversity. Now, that's a powerful faith. By the way, as we look at this, there's seven things that I would glean from this little passage that we can learn about trials. I'll give them to you very briefly. First of all, trials cannot eclipse Christian joy. You see that? In this, you greatly rejoice. There's nothing that can be so bad to drown out your joy if you truly know Christ, because that joy is something that is energized by the Spirit of God that is within you. 
Secondly, trials only last for a little while. Notice that he's, that's what he says, even though now for a little while. Sometimes we think that they're going to go on and on forever. And we begin to catastrophize everything. But thirdly, trials are a necessary part of God's purposes. That's what he says, if necessary. And we know that God takes us through the crucible at times. He, he tempers the steel of our faith and the fires of adversity so that he can conform us to Christ and be glorified in how we respond to it and how we ultimately mature. Fourthly, trials do cause distress. We see that in this text. Fifthly, trials come in various forms. You never know what it's going to be. And many of you are going through trials right now. And if we were to take a list of them, we would see that they're all a little bit different. Sixthly, trials are fiery tests that validate true saving faith, a faith that's never going to perish. And seventh, trials result in praise, glory and honor from Christ himself. That's why in James one, remember, James says to consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. And the idea in the original language is to calculate ahead. You look ahead at what these trials are ultimately going to produce. That's what it means. Count it all joy. Because he goes on to say that the testing of your faith is going to produce endurance, it's going to produce obedience, it's going to produce maturity. And if you're confused in all of that, he goes on to say, if any of you lack wisdom, you know, ask of God, but don't do it in doubting and he'll help you. It's a wonderful text. So child of God, may I put it this way? Ours is a powerful faith that can endure all of this. It is a mighty faith to accomplish all of these blessed purposes. And as a result, we can be jubilant. We can be thankful. We can rejoice because King Jesus will return. He will reveal himself as verses eight and nine say. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I'm reminded of. What the Holy Spirit tells us in Philippians 4, 4, remember where the Apostle Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You notice there there's no qualifications and it naturally assumes that we have the capacity to rejoice regardless of what's going on. Oh, but pastor, you just don't understand my situation. You see, my situation is far more bleak than you could ever imagine. So I'm quite justified in my despair. Oh, really? Friend, if that is your attitude, you've lost your perspective. You've forgotten who you are in Christ. You've forgotten the object of your faith. Charles Spurgeon struggled with depression because he was a very hated man. Because he spoke the truth especially in the ecclesiastical world that he lived. And he wrote something that I have had in some of my notes for a long time that have ministered to me. Here's what he said about this whole thing of joy and rejoicing in the Lord. And I quote, the cure for care, he says, is joy in the Lord. No, my brother, you will not be able to keep on with your fretfulness. 
No, my sister, you will not be able to weary yourself any longer with your anxieties if the Lord will but fill you with his joy. Then, being satisfied with your God, yea, more than satisfied, overflowing with delight in him, you will say to yourself, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. What is there, he goes on to say, on earth that is worth fretting for even five minutes? If one could gain an imperial crown by a day of care, it would be too great an expense for a thing which would bring more care with it. Therefore, let us be thankful. Let us be joyful in the Lord. I count it one of the wisest things that by rejoicing in the Lord, we commence our heaven here below. It is possible so to do. It is profitable so to do. And we are commanded to do so. End quote. So, friends, may I leave you with this challenge. The next time you have a pity party and you put your thumb in your mouth and you mope around as if all is lost and you start giving off all of these cues for people to feel sorry for you, may I encourage you to think on these reasons to rejoice, especially during this season of thanksgiving. Rejoice in the promise of your faith and the permanence of your faith and the power of your faith. For ours is an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. And it is reserved in heaven for you and for me. And it is protected by the power of the living God who has given it to us. Let's pray together. Father, indeed, it is with great joy that we immerse ourselves in these wonderful truths. And we thank you for the living hope that we have in Christ. May this be the song of all of our hearts, even though the days at times are very dark. And Lord, I pray especially for someone within the sound of my voice who knows nothing of this wonderful Savior that we love and that we worship. Lord, I pray that today they will bow the knee to Jesus, confess their sin. And by your great mercy and your love, experience the miracle of the new birth. And join in with the inheritance of all of the saints. For it is in Jesus' name and for His sake that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.